Well, happy Father's Day. Uh, it's, uh, uh, how many, actually, hands up. How many of you are fathers? Okay. How, how many... That, that shouldn't be funny yet. We're, we're getting there. It will be funny in a moment. How many of you got fathers? All of you. Interesting. Okay. Uh, or had fathers. It, um, it is a universal experience, actually. It's interesting, that, isn't it? That we've all either had them or got them. And... Um, Fathers are a very precious and important thing amongst us uh, in our world. Uh, we couldn't be here without a father. And we want to give thanks to them uh, for, and here's the word, use this often, siring us. Okay, so fathers sire a child. Uh, that's their particular part. When you, uh, if you do get married and you, uh, your wife, uh, you sire a child, she's pregnant, you don't say, we're pregnant. I just have a little thing about that. You say, my wife is pregnant, we're having a child. Right? You're not pregnant, you sired it, she's carrying it. Just a little bit of language there that you need to use in front of me right? when, you, when you're talking. I know what you're trying to say and it's lovely and all that. But um, uh, Father's Day is a time to think on our fathers, uh, even being a father one day, uh, thinking about the fathers we've had or might still have. Um, it's a very uh, important time. It's a really helpful time our society steps aside like this. And providentially, we're in a passage that in many ways is about fathers. Um, we've been going through the book of Genesis, if you're here with us uh, new, and, which is the very first book of the Bible. And we're now into the kind of the central section of the book of Genesis. Uh, and its focus, at least humanly speaking, is on a series of men who are fathers, um, don't start that way, of course, but become fathers. And it's important that we see that they do become fathers. Let me just show you this. I think I've got a slide. See if we can make this happen. We've got a slide. Here we go. Um, you, you meet in chapter 11 of Genesis a man called Terah who has a series of sons uh, and others. But Abraham is the particularly chosen one of his sons uh, who marries a woman called Sarah. Uh, they have a child in their old age. Uh, he's 100 and she's 90. Extraordinary thing. Um, they have the child Isaac. They also have another child called Ishmael to another woman. Uh, we are told a little bit about him, but not much. Is He becomes the father of the Arab nations. Um, Islam draws their roots back to Ishmael. Um, but Isaac is born to Abraham, uh, Abraham and Sarah. Isaac marries Rebecca. And we hear about that, uh, that sort of romance and relationship. Um, and they have two kids... Uh, they have Esau and Jacob, Jacob's the one we particularly pay attention, who himself marries, marries two women. Uh, Rachel, the one he particularly loves, Leah, the one that he's tricked into marrying. And it's a very tragic story in many ways. But they then have 12 sons between them and another couple of women. It's a very difficult story through there. And those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel because Jacob, the final uh, name there has his name changed to Israel and that's the book of Genesis uh, into we look at the 12 sons and uh, particularly Joseph and what happens with him and there is the book of, of Genesis which is recounting from chapter 12 all the way to the end this family line of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob so we're in this part of the Bible that's talking a great deal about fatherhood. In fact, if you come to chapter 12, get your Bibles, come to chapter 12. If you haven't got one with you, if you come along for the first time tonight, that's okay, just listen in. But chapter 12, the Lord had said to Abram, notice his name is Abram, 
Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now the key promise there is that I will make you into a great nation. See verse 2, I'll make you a great nation. He's a single man. He hasn't got got a child. But key to the promise that God makes to him is that he'll become a, a, a great nation. And implied in that, of course, is that he'll become a father. And chapter 17, if you flip over to chapter 17... Um, uh, uh, verse 1 I am God the Father before faith then I'll make my covenant between me and you will greatly increase your numbers verse verse 4 this is my covenant with you you will be the father of many nations no longer will you be called Abram your name will be Abraham for I've made you the father of many nations. This is about fatherhood in many ways, these uh, chapters of the Bible, where Abraham becomes a father in his, in his old age, uh, and we then follow his children. You know, Isaac, his child, uh, then his, uh, his grandson, Jacob, and his great-grandsons at the very end of the book. Um, so you might think, because there's so much emphasis on fatherhood, that this would be a great part of the Bible to think about being a father, that we'd get all kinds of lessons. And lots of people go to this part of the Bible to get lessons on, tips on parenting and fatherhood. And of course, isn't that the point of Father's Day? We all gather together to work out how to be better fathers and to celebrate fathers and so on. Um, and, uh, well, no, that's not the point of the Bible. The Bible wants to help us in all of life undoubtedly yes but the lesson of this part of the bible like the lesson of all the bible isn't on fatherhood except in so far it's a lesson on the great father the one from whom all fathers derive their meaning god the father you see It is true, we live in families and we'd love to know how to make our families work better and how to have fathers and mothers that uh, function well and family life is good. We'd love that because we live in families. But here's the thing, we live in a creation. We live in a world created by a creator. That we come to know him is vastly more important than that we come to know and how to make fathers work. And so the plan tonight is this, I want to offer you some father tips parenting tips though not many of you are fathers of course but I do want to offer you some insights into one day perhaps what it is to be a father and uh, mainly these will be negative uh, because that's the nature of this part of the Bible which will then I trust set us up to understand the deepest and truest message of this part of the Bible which is what is God like which I then want to help us see an even deeper truth of his desire to bless you I want us to work out who it is he blesses and I want us to work out how he does that blessing. There's where we're going tonight. I hope it's helpful to hear up front what we're doing. Let me talk to you about the lessons on fatherhood. And the big one I want to talk with you about is the influence of a father. The difference a father makes. A father has a powerful impact on a family in a way that I don't think our society is beginning to appreciate again, perhaps, but not not in its talk, not in the way it uh, speaks about fathers. Um, But fathers have a power in the lives of kids. Um, Whether they realise it or not, the the impact is there 
I want to show you some of this. It's interesting through these chapters, you get, there's three occasions through these chapters when you look at that family tree, when the husband betrays his wife to a great power. There's an occasion in chapter 12 and chapter 20 and chapter 26, three occasions where the husband, married to his wife, goes into a foreign land, is afraid for his safety because his wife is beautiful. So this happens in chapter 2 with Abraham. He's afraid that his wife is very attractive and if he goes into this foreign land under a great power, the ruler in that area is going to want to take his wife and kill him to get him out of the way. And so they come up with a scheme together to lie about their nature, the nature of their relationship and just say, let's, call it, let's say we're siblings. Do you know I'm your brother, you're my sister and not we're husband and wife? Now there's a half-truth to that because of what you see with the family tree. Uh, there's intermarriage and all kinds of things, so there's kind of a truth there. But he basically lies and deceives to keep himself safe. Good move or bad move as a husband? Let me actually... Just make it clear, bad move, right? <laughs> I shouldn't even pause and ask the question. Um, not a good move. Abraham's so concerned about his own safety that he, that he knows if he says we're brother-sister, the great power is going to take his wife and put her in his harem. So he's just sold his wife into slavery, into another man's home. Bad move. But here's the thing, he does it again. He does it again in chapter 20. And there's a third occasion where it happens in chapter 26. And on that occasion, who do you think is the one who does it to his wife? Abraham's son, Isaac. Where did he learn that from? See, here's the thing. Dads, whether you like it or not, if you become a father will have a profound impact on your children for good or bad, whether you're present or not present. Just the mere fact that you've sired a child and brought a child into the world means you will influence their life for good or bad. It's, there's a saying that we have, the apple's not fallen very far from the tree. It's the child that's born from you, doesn't fall very far from you and is very much like you in all the kinds of ways that you are. And you will detect that. You might be detecting it in yourself now, the kinds of things that you do that your dad did and you wish you didn't do and so on. And certainly fathers see it in their kids and what have you. Your influence is profound. But let me put it positively. The ability of a father to break the pattern of the past is massive. And again, this comes out of this section of the Bible. Um, Abraham, who's called in chapter 11 by God to follow God, to follow him, the Lord, the living, the true God. Chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abraham, go and take, leave your father's household, go to the land, I'll, make, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. The Abraham who's called to do that was once living in idolatry with his father. He'd grown up in an idol-worshipping home, a pagan home, uh, following demonic forces and that was his world until God pulled him out of that world called him to be a follower of the true and living God and here's the big powerful thing Abraham having come out of that world now become a follower of the true and living God has created a legacy that flows through his generations so his children now have an opportunity to be raised in an entirely different context in the context of knowing the truth of who God is 
and it's profoundly impactful upon his sons and daughters. Men, uh, just know this, whatever your background, whatever your background, you have the opportunity to, to leave something behind in generations that come from you that is good. I, on Father's Day, I often think of a good friend of mine who's now no longer with it, he's gone to be with the Lord, and he would tell the story of his growing up. And, uh, you know, a single mum raising him who was alcoholic, uh, all his, his dad had left the home, deserted them, uh, would say he was going to come and visit but never turned up. He'd, he would sit on the doorstep waiting for his dad to come. He never came. And he told me the terrible circumstances of his growing up. He became a Christian, this young man, married a Christian woman and then raised a flock of kids who know and love the Lord, who themselves have married into families who love Jesus. He has left behind a legacy that's broken from his past of much that's good. And young men here tonight, you have that opportunity uh, as you hear the call of God to leave behind a pagan lifestyle, a world that is opposed and actually embrace the things of Christ, marry someone who loves the Lord and together create something new. And your influence in that is profound and, and massive. Um, and the positive here, if I can say to you, young men, if you become fathers one day, if the Lord gives you to have children, take responsibility for the child that you sire. Take responsibility for each of the children that you bring into this world. Just uh, one of our complications in our culture today is that we have, in many ways, diminished fatherhood and we've created a culture where fathers are abdicating and disappearing. And it's, uh, there's a number of reasons why. Let me offer one of the reasons I think it's happening. As we've sought to um, remove the negative effects of patriarchy, the rule of men, let's say, um, We've seen how um, people have abused that and so on um, and there's a desire to kind of level out men and women. Um, now there's all kinds of questions about what's appropriate in all of this but as we've decided to kind of level out men and women and it's not now fatherhood, motherhood, it's just parenthood. As we've done that, what we've actually done sometimes inadvertently, sometimes deliberately, we have removed the place and role of men in understanding what they are as fathers. Now, how does that happen? Surely we can just encourage men and women to take responsibility. No, no, no. The, the ability to encourage men to that is a unique activity because women don't need it as much. Explain. When a, woman, when a woman gives birth to a child, that's after nine months of carrying a child. She has had for nine months an intimate experience of this child. She has been living with this child. The man... He just, in a moment of pleasure, sired the child and walked away. He has no relationship with this child in the womb. It's just a mystery of what's going on as he gets on with his life and surfs and fishes and plays golf and so on. And, and this woman is just growing with this child. She gives birth and that experience is an extraordinary experience. A great, um, you know, it has its, it has its challenges, but an incredibly unique thing to give birth to a child and then suckle the child. There is this intimacy that a woman creates with a child that is not there for a man for, for a number of years. Which therefore means you don't need to teach a woman to be a mother in the sense that you take risks. Women just have to. Many, most, the vast majority want to. 
But women are connected to a child just by virtue of biology and history. Men have none of that. And so unless there's clear cultural norms and expectations around what it is to sire a child and the importance and privilege of that and the responsibility that comes with that, they abdicate because they can. The mother can't and so doesn't. But he can and does and that's what we're finding. The research I've only got for you is in America but the American research is, is, is terrifying. The number of families growing up with uh, children without a father present. And the impact is massive. Let me take you through some statistics. 71% of high school dropouts and teen mums come from fatherless homes. That's nine times the national average. By not having a father, the impact is massive. 85% of all children who show behavioural disorders come from fatherless homes, which is 20 times the national average. 85% of youth in prison come from fatherless homes, which is 20 times the national average. The absence of fathers in the American context is massive. On, just the fact they're absent is massive on children. Now, this is not to say that if you're sitting amongst us and your dad's not with you, that you'll end up a dropout, uh, uh, um, in prison, whatever. But it does mean that there is a significant correlation between the lack of... Because fathers are a powerful influence for good or ill. And in the American scene, and growing in the Australian scene, that there is a, there is, it's easy for men to abdicate. And I want to say to you young men tonight, don't. And, and just to put it a little bit more tightly, if you choose to have sexual intercourse with a woman, know that you are choosing the potential that she will get pregnant and you will become a father and you are now bound to the life of that child for your life. God's word is wise when it calls us to get married and have sex within marriage so that you've chosen to have a family with this woman rather than sliding into it through circumstances that you were just pursuing pleasure. Young men, take responsibility for your actions. Love whatever children God gives you that you bring. Break free from the patterns of the world around us. Provide for, protect those children and be in the lives of those children when they come along. You know, the lessons of this passage, I mean, in many ways you see the responsibility of these fathers. They didn't get it perfectly right, of course. So there was uh, the problem of blended families that they brought into their family life. There was sibling rivalry. There was chapter 25. Did you notice the way the parents uh, favoured one child over another? So that you've got the, the context where chapter 25... Uh, uh, the boys grew up, verse 27, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home in the tents, quilting with his mum or something like this. Um, which is a lovely thing to do, I'm not being critical, but uh, you, you know, that's the kind of Isaac who had, but listen to this, Isaac the father who had a taste for wild game loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob, recipe for disaster. Do not play favourites. They were responsible parents in many ways, but they played their favourites and the families were disastrous because of it. Um, there's some parenting tips, some of which emerge from this part of the Bible. But let's go to the deeper and bigger thing. 
What do we learn here about our heavenly Father? Much. Come back to chapter 12. Chapter 12. Do you remember the promises that Abraham is given by God? I want you to notice this firstly. Verse 2 to verse 3, look how many times the word bless is used. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I'll curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. It's interesting up until this point in the book of Genesis, if you've been with us, uh, or, or if you're not listening, of course, but the, the, the language of blessing was there in the first chapter or so. But then it disappeared. It was curse and curse. Cursed is the ground. Cursed, cursed. God regretted making. It was judgment upon the increase of sin and pride and destruction of humanity. Curse, 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 until you hit chapter 12. And then in the space of two or three verses, there is blessing and blessing and blessing. And what you find here suddenly is that God determines, not suddenly because he he prefaced it back in chapter 3 of Genesis, he now reveals his determination to rescue his world, to bless it. Do you know the first thing I want to tell you about our God? He's a God who wants to bless. He wants to bless you. He actually says here in verse 3, his determination is that all the peoples on earth will be blessed. He wants to bring blessing. We deserve cursing. We deserve his judgment righteously. But he's a God who wants to bless. First thing to pick up, the powerful, loving God who wants to bless. Second thing to pick up, who does he want to bless? Who gets this blessing? Well, if you look in chapter 12 again, who gets the blessing? One man, Abram. One man, though, with the intention that all the peoples on the earth will be blessed. But this blessing starts with one man. And if you come into chapter 17, it has a particular expansion, if you like. Chapter 17, verse 7 I'll establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. Um, So God makes a promise to bless Abraham and his offspring. You see, God wants to bless, first point. He wants to bless a particular line of people, Abraham, And his offspring. You know, as you go through the book of Genesis, there's lots of children mentioned, lots of relatives. Abraham has a number of children, uh, Ishmael and Isaac, and then a bunch more. But it's only one of those children that receives the promise of blessing. And it's only one of the grandchildren that receives the promise of blessing. Let me show it to you. Come to chapter 17. Come to chapter 17. Verse 19. Now remember I've mentioned that um, Abraham has two sons. His eldest son is Ishmael by Hagar, a mistress. And the other one is the one to Sarah, Isaac. But look what God says. Verse 19. Your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him. 
as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you, I will surely bless him, I will make him fruitful and greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and make him into a great nation, which God did. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear you this time next year. God intentionally chooses only one of Abraham's children to be the line of blessing. Now Isaac, the son of Abraham, he has a number of children. And in the first instance, he has twins. We had the reading from chapter 25. Come over there to chapter 25. He has two sons who jostle in the womb, verse 22, which is what boys do. Boys start in the womb fighting and live their lives fighting each other, as far as I can see. But, um, but God determines to bless only one of them. Verse 23, two nations are in your room, two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. It'll be Jacob who's chosen for blessing, not Esau. And in fact, you come across to 28, and you'll see this express, come across to chapter 28, verse 13. There's a dream that Jacob has. This is the grandson of Abraham. Verse 13, there above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. So the God of your grandfather Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and south. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. God very intentionally through the book of Genesis indicates that he's determined to bless a certain line. And in, in each case, here's the big thing. There's nothing special about the children God chose to bless. This is huge. There is nothing praiseworthy about the line of children that God chose to bless. And in fact, they're the reverse of special, they're unspecial. You see, in the ancient world, it should always be the eldest who receives the blessing and the youngest not. But God intentionally reverses that. Ishmael's the eldest, but he doesn't get it. Well, he gets a kind of one, but not the covenant blessing of the younger son, Isaac. It's the younger one who was chosen. And he's chosen, let me say this, he's chosen before he's given any evidence of having faith in God. Now Isaac has his children. And again, it's not the eldest that's chosen, as you might expect, it's Jacob. And Jacob is the least impressive of the two kids. His name, actually come to 25 there, his name uh, is to be called uh, Jacob. And if you've got a Bible with footnotes, you'll come down verse 26, the footnote. Jacob means he grasps the heel and he, it's an idiom for deceives. Jacob is a deceiver. He is a sneaky, underhanded liar. You see it in the way he, he cruelly gets his brother to sell his birthright at the end of chapter 25. And in chapter 27... He then sneakily lies to his dad to get the blessing of his father. Uh, He pretends to be his brother. 
Verse 21 of chapter 27, Isaac said to Jacob, Come near and I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close. His father Isaac touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He didn't recognize him. Are you really my son Esau? I am, he replied. Jacob's a liar, a deceiver. He is sneaky. He is underhanded. And here's the thing. He's the one chosen to receive the blessing of God. In each case, it's emphatic in the Bible. God chooses intentionally the ones who are least worthy. Almost like there's a plan. And in all of this, God is revealing something massive to his world, to us. And this is it. He is the God who chooses the least, the weak, the unworthy, the least worthy. He is the one who chooses the sinner. Why? Well, there's a number of reasons. To undo the proud, to determined to give hope to the weak and he does it because he's gracious this is who he is do you see what's happened so far we have just been introduced to the God of the Bible he is a God who wants to bless you and he wants particularly to bless you if you're unworthy of the blessing because that's the kind of God he is he's the God who particularly wants to bless those who are unworthy And so Romans chapter 9 puts it like this, God deliberately chooses Jacob over Esau, even though he's the unworthy one, and he does it deliberately before either had done anything good or bad. He does it so that it might be obvious he is free to bless people as he chooses. He is the God who will show compassion on whom he decides to have compassion on. He'll be the God who shows mercy to whom he shows mercy. And he's the God who wants to show mercy and compassion to the unworthy. That's the kind of God God is. He chooses Abraham, a pagan. He chooses his kids, who are losers, because they're worthy. No, that's the point. Don't try and go through these accounts and find out why they deserve to get it. They didn't get deserve to get that's the very point now why is this important to know particularly on father's day it's important to know on father's day because if you're a dad amongst us today's the day you're most aware of your failings and wasn't it lovely to hear two men speak about the reality of their failings father of the year the universal father of the year pete sheath tells us of his weaknesses it um you 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 know and, and See, when you're on Father's Day, that's when you go, oh, I blew it, I should have, how come I didn't? And if you're sitting here today, uh, you're not a father, today is often the day you're wishing you had a better father. Not always. But some of you are sitting here going, how come I didn't have a father who was humble like that, who broke, danced and all this, why didn't I have a dad like that? Do you know, um, God chose these particular messed up men in Genesis to give you hope, messed up man and woman, but today's Father's Day. He did it to actually make sure that you sitting here tonight, men and women, 
know that there's a God that you've got a hope with. Because he's not a God who only choose the righteous, but he comes to choose the sick. Which means you've got hope. You know, Christianity is not God loves the impressive and the morally good and the righteous and upright. It's such a popular mistake that people make. They imagine Christianity's message is, if you just get your act together and be a better person, God might have you. That is not biblical Christianity. It's a fake kind of Christianity that's around. And it's unfortunately really rife in churches. There was some research done in 2015 in America again. They, uh, they, in, they um, surveyed 20 to 20 year olds who were still in church, in evangelical churches in America. And they asked them, what have you got to do to get to heaven? 65% of them said, you've got to be good. 65% of young adults sitting in American churches misunderstand completely the Christian message. The Christian message is not, be good and you might make it. The Christian message is, thank God the heavenly God, the true God, is a heavenly Father who loves the unworthy and chooses to bless those that are unworthy, not because they're worthy of it, but because he's compassionate and gracious. You see, um, two big things. Introduced, be introduced to God, the heavenly Father, your Father, the Father of all. He's the God who wants to bless And he wants to bless particularly people who don't deserve that blessing. Which means you're sitting here tonight, you've got hope. I've got hope. Third, how does this blessing come? Well, this is the biggest idea and it's deep and complex. And so I want you to take a breath and join me on a big, big thing. It's going to expand our brains. We've been talking about God blessing. We've been talking about him choosing the unworthy to bless them. Uh, He's showing himself to be gracious. Um, But how does his blessing go beyond that? Come back to Genesis 12. And I want to show you uh, this verse again. Look at verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There's the key to blessing for us here tonight. See, God chooses Abraham to bless Abraham and his offspring. But then he says, the key to others receiving this blessing, the key to others receiving the blessing, is what they do with the blessed one. How is it that us who are not in the line of Abraham, in this blessed line, how do we receive blessing? How does the whole world get blessed? They get blessed by what they do with the blessed one, with the offspring. Now this plays out through the book of Genesis and we haven't got time to go through it all, but I want you to notice a couple of things. Um, come with me to chapter 20. Come, we'll do, see if we can do this quickly. Come to chapter 20. This explains some of the things that go on here. Abraham, I mentioned earlier, gave his wife as his sister to the ruler of the time. And this was a man called Abimelech. Abimelech takes his wife, thinking it's his sister and thinking it's all okay. Um, Look at verse 3. God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. 
God, now why does God come to Abimelech and say you're as good as dead? Because what you do with Abraham means you'll be blessed or cursed. If you take Abraham's wife, you're dead, says God. Now this exact thing happens again in chapter 26. Come to chapter 26, verse 11. Abimelech, again, we don't know if it's the same Abimelech, but this poor man, he's picked up another sister wife and, uh, of Isaac and uh, um, Abimelech gives orders to all his people, anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely be put to death because this man is the man of blessing. If you curse this man, you're cursed of God. If you bless this man, you're blessed of God. How you find blessing? It's what you do with the blessed one of God, the offspring of God. And you come across to chapter 30 and you see this expressed positively. Chapter 30, verse 27. This is an incident we haven't got time to go into, but Jacob is now with his future father-in-law. And listen to Laban, what he says. Um, If I have found favour in your eyes, verse 27, please stay. I have learned that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Genesis chapter 12, whoever blesses Abraham and his offspring will be blessed. And Laban goes, I realise it's because you've been with us that I've been blessed because blessing you blesses me. It's what you do with the offspring. Now, do you see what the point of this is? Here's where the mind gets blown. Come to Galatians 3. We're almost there. Galatians 3. You see, this Genesis dynamic... God blessing one and then blessing those in their relationship with the blessed one doesn't go very far. God's purpose is to use this to bring blessing to the whole world, but they really only bring blessing to a few tribes and people of the Middle East. It doesn't go very far. But then along comes the great offspring of Abraham, the child of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The one to whom the promise was always intended. Jesus. The one who was always worthy of being the blessed one. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob weren't worthy of being blessed and having others be blessed in them. But he finally is the offspring who is worthy of being blessed by God. He is the one who never sinned, truly the man of faith. And he is the one who brings to fulfilment this whole storyline and movement of history. Have a look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. The Apostle Paul explains it by the Spirit of God. He says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, singular. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, plural, or offsprings. He says, to offspring. He said, Scripture does not say to, to offsprings, meaning many people, but to your offspring, meaning one person who is Christ. What Paul is saying is that the very reason for the promise back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 27 and Genesis 27, all of these great promises to the offspring, the offspring who would bless the world, was actually a promise by God to the great offspring, Jesus, the truly blessed one who will bring blessing to the whole world. How does he bring blessing to the whole world? Well, the Apostle Paul explains it there in verse 11. 
Clearly, no one who relies on the law is made right with God, justified with God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith and so on. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us in our place. He redeemed us, verse 14, in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the nations, the world, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit, the great blessing of intimacy with God. Do you see, how is it that blessing can come to the unworthy? In Genesis, you don't know the answer. You just see that God chooses the unworthy, the unworthy, and you go, what's going on here? Well, what happens is the offspring of them is Jesus, the worthy one, but he himself goes to the cross And does this incredible transfer where he takes on himself the curse that we deserve, the unworthiness that we deserve, laid upon Jesus, the blessed one. And he suffers our punishment in our place so that his blessing that he earned by his righteousness, his blessing might be transferred to us, those who look to him, who respond to him as the blessed one, who attach ourselves to him, the blessed one. And you don't attach yourself to him by being better. It actually demonstrates the wonder of God's grace, that he gives you the gift of his blessing that he earned to me who didn't earn it by virtue of just loving Jesus, embracing Jesus, putting my faith in Jesus. Why Jesus? Because he is the son of God. He is God himself. Brothers and sisters, I hope you can see tonight, and friends that might be here, that God's purposes back in Genesis, 3,800 years ago, were all anticipating an event, the event of Jesus. How do you make that up? No one can make that up. It's God who inspired and put it in place and prepared the way for the coming of the blessed one and anticipate. Have you ever wondered whether Christianity is true? Here is one more reason to be convinced it is. You just can't create that story. It's an incredible journey that God takes the world through. The evidence is incredible. And the evidence is revealed of the God, the great father of the world, is a father who wants to bless. But how does he bless the unworthy? Because he wants to bless the unworthy. The problem is we're all unworthy. How does he bless the unworthy? By bringing into the world the blessed one, the offspring, who takes upon himself our unworthiness and dies because of it under the righteous judgment of God, but then pours out his blessing of relationship with his father, intimacy with the father, future into eternity. He pours out that blessing on any who would look to him. Those that bless Jesus will be blessed if you would but come to the Lord Jesus. And when you come to the Lord Jesus, you don't just get pardoned, though you do. You don't just get your sins forgiven, though you do. You get invited into the family of God where he now becomes your father and you receive the spirit of the father, the spirit who lets you cry out, Abba, Father, my Father.
you have a hope of eternity because of the blessed offspring. Throw yourself on him. Claim him as your hope. Not your own merit, not your works, but embrace him as your saviour. Now, I'm conscious of many sitting here tonight who have gone through the pain of a father who was absent. You, you long to have a father who holds you and loves you. You long to have a father who delights in you and rejoices over you. And what you have through the merits of the Lord Jesus is the sure sign that the God who created us is exactly that father who sings over you, who calls to you, who delights to have you as his child, to bless you if you would but come back to him. Will you come back if you've not? If you have come to him, I want to encourage you tonight that the one that you know as the Heavenly Father is a one who blesses, who blesses the unworthy, who blesses the unworthy through the blessed one, Jesus, and your relationship to him. Those who don't know Jesus, I want to urge you to come back to him tonight. Let me pray for us. Uh, our Heavenly Father, we are conscious that even the best of fathers pale into insignificance compared to you, the great and glorious, tender Father. We thank you for the revelation of you as the Father who longs to bless, who longs to bless the unworthy and who has put in place such a plan to bring an offspring who was himself worthy, but to give his gift of blessing to us who are unworthy. We thank you for this incredible thing that you've worked through history. I pray for those of us who don't know you, sitting here tonight, that you might stir them, that you might actually actively work by your spirit to call them to yourself even tonight. Those of us who do know you as Father, please help us rejoice in, in the great gift it is to have you as our Heavenly Father. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.